Hi everyone and welcome back to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week, we're revisiting a time in our country where the themes of those days gone past resonate with the issues that we're still facing today. With that said, today's story is a little bit vintage, a little bit rock and roll, and very eyebrow-raising when we get to the bottom of it. When it comes to the greats in music history, Elvis Presley is the undisputed king of rock and roll. Britney Spears, the queen of pop and of our hearts. And with his velvety vocals, Sam Cooke was and remains the king of soul. But how did the man who invented soul, with his talented star still rising and his place as an activist in the civil rights movement solidifying, find himself shot dead at just 33 years old by a motel owner in a seedy part of Los Angeles after allegedly cavorting with an escort? This is only the first in a long stream of hashtag questions that surround the mysterious death of musician, entrepreneur, and activist Sam Cooke. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Sam Cooke, spelled C-O-O-K at birth, actually, fun fact, was born in 1931 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He was the fifth of eight children born to Reverend Charles and Annie Mae Cooke, and it was actually only two years after Sam's birth that the family left the dangers of the Jim Crow South to move north. The progressive era of the 30s hadn't quite reached Mississippi, and Reverend Cooke recognized the danger and the disadvantages of being a Black family in the South at the time. After all, his own grandmother, Sam's great-grandmother, had been a slave, and the memory of slavery was still a tangible wound. Reverend Cook wanted more, wanted better for his family, more than his little flock would be able to find or achieve if they stayed in their home state of Mississippi that was so steeped in racism. So it was that in 1933, the Cook family became residents of the Bronzeville neighborhood in Chicago. Reverend Cook founded a church of his own in the entrepreneurial-driven Black community that the neighborhood was known for. From the very beginning, Sam was surrounded by this spirit of music and of hustle. So it's no wonder he became a musical and entrepreneurial pioneer later in his own life. At the heart of Sam, though, was the music. Given that their father was a preacher, it's really no surprise that the Cook children often performed both at his church and at other churches throughout the area. Dubbed the Singing Children, this involvement in the gospel circuit became the gateway for Sam's natural talent to gain local, regional, and even eventually national notice, especially when he joined the Soul Stirs in 1950 at 18 years old as the lead singer replacement for R.H. Harris. The Soul Stirs were the number, number one gospel group in the country at the time, and they toured nationally to massive crowds where girls were actually known to rush the stage because Sam was a damn heartthrob in that realm of the music world at the time. It was during the first Southern tour the Soul Stirs did with Sam in their own midst that the concept of activism first fully sparked within him. This tour, taking place on what was called the Chitlin Circuit, opened Sam's eyes and exposed him to the harsh realities of Southern segregation and racial prejudice that so many Black people were living under. 
Having grown up in Chicago, Sam hadn't fully experienced the cruelty of the Jim Crow laws. This was 1955. It was the year Emmett Till was murdered and Rosa Parks refused to sit at the back of the bus. These events both moved Sam deeply and also sparked a fire within him. The first draw he felt towards using his talent to help facilitate change. Sam recognized the unique power he had as a musician, even in such early days of his career. He had the love and support of the Black community, but now, now Sam wanted to be able to connect with a white audience, especially as the rise of soul and the birth of rock and roll were taking place. It was in 1956 that Sam realized he needed to make a change and take a leap of faith, even if that faithful leap led him straight into the arms of so-called devil's music that would break his ties with the soul stirs. However, in 1957, Sam Cooke, officially C-O-O-K-E now because we love a flair for panache, thank you, dropped a little ditty called You Send Me, and life would never be the same. You Send Me would later be dubbed the quintessential pop song of the time, and needless to say, it absolutely skyrocketed up the charts and skyrocketed Sam to one-man stardom. He appeared on the famous 50s program The Ed Sullivan Show, as well as Dick Clark's American Bandstand. It was his appearance on the Atlanta-based bandstand, actually, that captured the attention and idiotic ire of the KKK, who threatened the show, should Sam appear. This would be one of the first instances of Sam basically flipping the finger to racism as a whole. He was angry but unafraid, and he felt that he had a responsibility to appear on the show despite these threats. Like I said, the threats the KKK made against his appearance on American Bandstand they wouldn't be the first out-and-out racist attacks thrown his way. Now, even during the height of his career, Sam would face racism and segregation. He would defend Dionne Warwick from a police officer who stormed his very own tour bus after an incident when they were refused service at a diner during a Southern tour. He actually missed a performance in Georgia another time because white taxi drivers refused to drive him to the venue from the airport, and black taxi drivers weren't even allowed to service airports. And Sam himself led a boycott against the Memphis Auditorium in 1961 because he refused to perform to an audience that was integrated but segregated, since Black attendees would have been forced to sit only in the balcony or in the back. And Sam simply wasn't fucking having that. Hell, he was actually arrested in October of 63 for refusing to be denied entrance to a hotel in Louisiana. This devotion to breaking down barriers and recognizing how he could influence change through song was something that Sam came to understand quite early on in his career. And it was something that kept him connected to the South and his roots there, despite not necessarily needing to, so to speak. Sam was so famous, he could have foregone touring in the South, performing down in those segregated states, but he actively chose to keep his presence alive in those exact areas because not only did it help piss off the racists to see a talented black man appealing to the white audience Sam was very much trying to connect with, which I mean, that's just a treat itself, but it served Sam well in another area he was focused on becoming involved with, the civil rights movement. One of the most gorgeously incredible talents Sam Cooke had was how damn good he was at using music to speak about the issues of the time in a critical manner even or maybe especially to his white audience. Take a song like Chain Gang, for example. 
It is blatantly clear Sand is referring to prison farms even before the pictures of Sam and his two white producers dressed in black and white striped uniforms were released. When Bob Dylan released Blowing in the Wind, Sam was inspired that a Jewish man was comfortable speaking so openly about social change that he himself covered the song in a sped up, dancey sort of version that, to the untrained white ear and eye, was just that, a dancey little pop song. But it's with his timeless classic, truly his own swan song of protest, A Change Is Gonna Come, that Sam shows the natural ease he had for this particular talent. That is to say, code switching. So much of what Sam did with his music was beautifully utilized to code switch intentionally later in his career. And I don't mean that in any sort of insulting or derogatory way. We code switch ourselves in our day-to-day lives. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily speak to your parents the same way you might talk among your friends, or maybe you would, I don't know your life. But a better example of that might be the tone of voice you take with your boss versus the one you might take with your sibling. Your mannerisms, your vernacular, even the pitch of your voice might change depending on if you're having a conversation with your supervisor or just shooting the shit with your sister or brother. It was with this code switching that Sam was able to create that shiny, all-American pop star veneer he held with his white audience while still holding tightly and proudly to his Black roots and history with his Black audience. If you want a real example of how easily Sam could slip back and forth between these two worlds, here's some homework for you to do after the episode. Go listen to the studio version of Bring It On Home To Me on the album Portrait of a Legend, Sam Cooke. Once you're finished with that, check out the song One Night Stand, Sam Cooke Live at the Harlem Square Club. Bring It On Home To Me is on this album, and it's of Sam performing live to a majority Black audience. And the utter juxtaposition between the two ways he could perform this one song is just so goosebump-inducing, as it really hits you just how multifaceted and talented an artist he was. Sam purposely created music that would speak openly about the issues of segregation, of racism, of long-held prejudice that the Black audience had lived through and knew well. And right alongside that message, he brought these issues to the forefront of the consciousness of his white audience, who was beginning to really listen to Sam and the Black experience of the time for their first time. Sam was, with his intentional words and purpose, leading the charge for civil rights through song. And it absolutely fucking terrified several powers that be. Powers that were, powers that, powers that were, the powers of the 60s, let's put it like that. Because you see, not only was Sam making a name for himself as a fledgling leader for the civil rights movement, but he was making a name alongside some very powerful, very familiar figures. By this time in the 1960s, Sam had become close friends with Cassius Clay, more commonly known as the boxer Muhammad Ali, and through their friendship, Sam was introduced to Malcolm X. Through Malcolm, Sam began understanding the economical teachings of Islam, and this started him down the road towards starting his own publishing, recording, and management businesses for other artists. Having reached this particularly powerful level of his stardom, Sam once again felt called to continue enacting change, this time to reach back and help other artists find stardom, freedom, and commercial success much like he had. While these ideas were taking shape and unfolding, Sam was still managed by RCA Victor, 
And they were absolutely shaking in their boots at the idea of Sam taking other potential talent, AKA dollar dollar bills, away from their own control. Much more than that, they were terrified at the prospect of Sam and his own insane commercial success leaving them because his new manager, a dude by the name Alan Klein, sidebar, remember this name, had just started an audit against RCA Victor because, as Alan told Sam, RCA was actually swindling boatloads of money out from under Sam and the royalties his music deserved. It was with this shady business dealing that really inspired Sam to start his own companies. And in 1962, alongside his friend J.W. Alexander, they started Star Records and CAG's music, which were built on the radical idea of making the artists as important as the company owners. Concepts that both terrified and infuriated head honchos all across the industry, especially when they saw how successful Star and CAGs were becoming. Where Sam was experiencing joy at creating and developing talent in a way that the music industry hadn't yet seen, there were those on the outside who saw something else entirely. They saw danger to their way of business and their profits. Sam's benevolence, combined with his forward-thinking business savvy, would later come into question, a question of if they played a role in his murder. The year was now 1964, cue, oh, what a night, even though we're a year off, and <laughs> Sam's contract was up for negotiation at RCA Victor. In the past year, Sam had undergone several transformations, business-wise, artistically, and in his personal life. It was the unexpected drowning of his 18-month-old son that instigated most of the upheaval in Sam's life. The surroundings of Vincent's death were made all the more tragic because he died at the Cook family home. Barbara, Sam's wife had, for whatever reason, went back into the home while Vincent was outside, and the toddler got into their private pool and drowned. It was an excruciating tragedy that was compounded by the fact that this accident only deepened the wedge that had grown between Sam and Barbara. Sam was inherently a good man, but it can't be denied that he was something of a womanizer. He had long engaged in flings and affairs, and he'd fathered at least four children out of wedlock. The grief of losing their son pushed Sam away from the family home, both literally and figuratively. It was said that Sam began finding it physically impossible to stand being at the home because the pool where Vincent drowned was situated in such a way that you had to actually walk past it to get through the front door. So it was that Sam found himself drinking a little harder, laughing less, and pouring himself even more deeply into his work, which coincided with the creation of Star Records, CAG's music, and these negotiations with RCA Victor. Now, in the spirit of being honest with you all, I'm going to share a fun fact about me here. I had to take accounting twice in college because I so miserably failed the first time. And the second time was when I was a graduating senior. And I truly only passed by the grace of God and Professor Swanpole, who seriously took mercy on my soul. That said, just like, please understand that I don't understand a lot of the nitty gritty financial details of what I researched when looking into the honestly absolute thievery that was this upcoming negotiation debacle. As it is, <laughs> from my understanding, 
Sam sought the guidance of his friend and manager, Alan Klein, to help coordinate his negotiation with RCA Victor in such a way that his endeavors with J.W. Alexander, their publishing company, the recording company, and his management of other artists were properly reflected. Sam was bound and determined to continue pursuing the avenues of uplifting other artists and having control over his own work, which is how Alan Klein came up with the idea of starting Tracy Limited. Klein came back to Sam with this as the deal he had negotiated. Sam would enter a five-year deal with RCA Victor in which a holding company, Tracy Limited, named after Sam's middle daughter, would produce and own his recordings. RCA Victor would get exclusive distribution rights in exchange for 6% royalty payments and payments for the recording sessions. Sam, according to what Klein told him, would own the company. But the documents and paperwork Sam examined while he was sick in bed with the flu, and I mean, obviously having nothing better to do than seriously pour over the nuances and legalese of it all, this paperwork said quite the opposite. In fact, it said that Sam wouldn't own anything at all. He would effectively be an employee of Alan Klein, who had finagled aforementioned legalese to make himself the owner. Needless to say, Sam felt betrayed, indignant, and absolutely fucking furious. So furious, in fact, that on Thursday, December 10th, Sam remarked that when he flew to New York to see Klein that coming Monday, he was going to fire him. Nobody at the time knew, though, that he wouldn't see that through. Because Sam, he wouldn't live through the weekend. With Christmas just two weeks away, the holiday spirit was coursing through Hollywood. On the night of December 10th, 1964, Sam Cooke found himself out to dinner at Martoni's, a well-known music industry hangout, with his producer Al Schmidt and his wife. The night was a fun one, by all accounts, as Sam indulged in several martinis, and at one point he pulled out a wad of cash totaling $5,000, fanning and waving the bills around for a laugh. That $5,000 would be about $41,000 in today's terms, which, like, can you even imagine having that much cash on you for a simple night out? Like, good lord. Obviously, I'm not the only one who is agog at the idea because Joanne, Schmidt's wife, admonished Sam to just put the cash away because even in an industry establishment, it wasn't wise to be flaunting the fact that Sam had that much money in his pockets. Sam simply laughed her off and instead made his way over to the bar where a woman had caught his eye. The woman at the bar was Lisa Boyer, and Sam had one out ahead of the three other men who'd been circling her, who had been also vying for her attention, before he came over and introduced himself. As it was, she and Sam spent the evening chatting and drinking before making their way to PJ's, a nightclub where Sam had told the Schmitz he would meet up with them. It was 1 a.m. though, and by the time Sam and his supposed paramour for the evening hit the club, the couple were gone. And Sam didn't last much longer either. The two left quickly before a true fight broke out because Sam had begun exchanging words with a man who started hitting on Lisa almost as soon as they arrived. It was 2 a.m. on December 11th when Sam and Lisa Boyer pulled up to the Hacienda Motel in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. Here, I'll be sharing with you what we like to call the official story. 
Lisa Boyer later testified that on the drive to the Hacienda Motel, she asked Sam several times to take her home and that she felt that Sam had kidnapped her to the motel. When the two arrived at the Hacienda, Sam went inside to check in for a room. The night manager at the time, Bertha Franklin, peered out to where Sam's car was, saw Boyer, and told Sam that he would have to register as a Mr. and Mrs. if they wanted a room together because, lest we forget, this is the 60s. As Sam amended the registration, Franklin claimed that Boyer, despite telling people after the fact that she had been kidnapped and that she was uncomfortable, she never said a word at all or even tried to make a getaway if she had been kidnapped. Once their room was squared away, Boyer states that Sam, quote, dragged her to the room, pinned her to the bed, and took her clothes off. According to Boyer, Sam let her use the bathroom at this point, and she tried to make an escape for it, but she found the window to be painted shut. She exited the bathroom and found Sam had taken off his own clothes, and he then went into the bathroom himself. Standing in the room alone in a slip and a bra, Boyer told police that she grabbed her clothes, she accidentally grabbed some of Sam's clothes, and fled the room. She would run down to Bertha Franklin's office, but in her fear, Boyer left before Franklin ever came to the door. She finally put her clothes on, allegedly hid Sam's clothes somewhere, and found a phone booth where she called police. As Boyer is running through the streets, Sam is back at the motel and realizes that not only is the woman that he brought with him gone, but so too were his pants and his wallet. Loki, here I have to ask my first of what will be many hashtag fucking questions in that how was it that Lisa Boyer managed to grab Sam's pants, but she left the rest of his clothes back at the room? Because just think about how you yourself undress. One assumes that pants would come off first and be at the bottom of a pile of clothes. So how is it that she just happened to grab Sam's pants, but nothing else? Because as Sam ran back to Bertha Franklin's office, he was dressed, albeit strangely. He was wearing only his sports jacket and just one shoe. At this point, Sam began banging on the door and yelled, Is the girl in there? Franklin yelled back through the door that no, no girl was in there. She was alone. Despite hearing this, Sam still pounded on the door and he was able to shoulder his way into the room, demanding to know where Boyer had gone. Franklin would later claim that Sam, quote, grabbed her arms and a fight ensued. She would also later testify at a hearing Sam might have had, quote, a bite on him because she was, quote, fighting, scratching, and biting him all throughout their altercation. Evelyn Carr, who was the owner of the motel, had actually been on the phone with Franklin at the time. And Franklin, at some point, managed to grab a pistol and just started shooting in her own words. Evelyn Carr heard the three shots ring out. And faintly, from the other end of the phone, she heard the distinctive voice of Sam Cook say, almost in disbelief, Lady, you shot me. They would be his last words. By the time Carr called the police to tell them that she believed a shooting had occurred at her motel, it was too late. Sam Cook, all of 33 years old, had been shot dead with a bullet through the heart and in circumstances that already weren't making sense. 
As the news of Sam Cooke's death began circling throughout the industry, the airwaves, and the world, suspicion surrounding the events was immediately raised by family and friends. In the documentary, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, Smokey Robinson relayed that when he heard that Sam had been shot to death, the news was, quote, one of the biggest shocks of my life. Those closest to Sam refuted the suggestion that he had ever been known to be a violent or aggressive man. The very idea that Sam would try to violently assert power over somebody just went against the very ethos of who he was and what he stood for. The police worked quickly as they investigated what happened at the Hacienda Motel that night. So quickly, in fact, that the coroner's inquest was held just a few days later on December 16th. It was here that Lisa Boyer, decked out in sunglasses while indoors, which what the hell, and a scarf over her hair in some form of a disguise, gave her testimony about her supposed kidnapping and eventual escape from the clutches of Sam Cooke. So too did Bertha Franklin give her own testimony of the events that led to her shooting Sam Cooke straight through the heart as they allegedly tussled. The lawyer representing the Cook family, well, he was barely allowed to get one question in before the ruling was handed down. And as it was, the ruling was this, justifiable homicide, case closed. Any suspicion that had begun raising its ugly head was now amplified tenfold. Sam's funeral took place in Chicago two days later on December 18th, where even more voices joined the chorus of questioning what had really happened just one week prior. Questions were even being raised about the veracity of how Sam even died that night. Etta James would later share in her memoir that she was deeply disturbed that the seemingly official story the world had been told didn't quite match with the vicious injuries that were still noticeable on Sam's body at the funeral. She would go on to write that overall, he looked badly beaten. His hands were mangled, his nose looked broken. And though Bertha Franklin did admit to beating him with a broom handle after shooting him, how could a broom handle have done enough damage that Etta thought he had been damn near decapitated? The suspicion towards the events was beginning to combine with a sense of righteous indignation and how the investigation had barely been handled. Muhammad Ali upon seeing Sam's body, claimed that, quote, if Sam had been Elvis or one of the Beatles, the FBI would still be investigating and somebody would be in jail. Which raised the question, why had the investigation been so shut and closed? Surely on the surface, it did seem like a hideously unfortunate accident of sorts. But upon deeper inspection, things truly didn't add up. And there were a ton of other questions that quickly followed after. It's interesting to note how Muhammad Ali verbally threw down with the FBI after seeing Sam's body because, unbeknownst to most at the time, Sam was actually being surveyed by the FBI. Sam's friendships with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and his association with Martin Luther King Jr. had brought him squarely to their attention and thus under the FBI's watch. It's no secret that the government as a whole was closely watching these emerging figures of the Black empowerment and the civil rights movements. The government and its leaders 
felt that these individuals were an out-and-out threat to the very institutions that the nation as a whole stood for. Sam and his associations, all that he was on the cusp of creating, and the influence he could wield over both his black and white audiences, were they reason enough to get him killed? Were they reason enough to cause the death of many of his other associates? Because just two months after Sam was murdered, in February of 65, Malcolm X was assassinated. And three years later, in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Are we to believe that this is just a tragic coincidence? Was the power that these Black men held and that they were on the cusp of wielding in a large-scale way so unnerving to government leaders, and I am looking at you, J. Edgar Hoover, you paranoid lunatic, were they so unnerving that they were killed for it? Though this isn't the full theory of what I believe truly happened to Sam Cooke, it's something definitely to be considered, especially with the rest of the curious twists and turns events took in the aftermath of Sam's death. Just one month later, and I mean literally one month later, like to the day of Sam's death, Lisa Boyer was arrested for prostitution. And it was then that her history of working as both a prostitute and a role artist came to light. Boyer was known to use scenarios like the one she found herself in at the Hacienda to her own advantage. She would arrive at the motel room with a John, find an opportunity to be alone with the John's things, and then slip out of the room with his wallet and clothes, literally taking the money and running with the clothes in hand as well, so that the man in question would be too bamboozled and probably embarrassed to immediately follow in pursuit. Could this have been her plan from the start of the evening? With Sam flashing so much money at Martoni's, honestly, it certainly seems plausible. Unless we forget, Boyer had been surrounded by three men before Sam made his way over to her at the Martoni's bar. Could one of those men have been her pimp? It was suggested that a similar tactic, but with the involvement of the pimp, was also something she was known to use against John's. Boyer could have easily grabbed Sam's clothes, thrown them out a window to her pimp, and then rendezvoused with him after leaving the room. We aren't even at the hashtag question segment, and I already have a lot of them. Eerily enough, too, also side note, in 1979, Boyer would be arrested and found guilty of second-degree murder for killing her own husband. Lisa Boyer, we will come back to you. Bertha Franklin had a questionable past of her own that I want to get into. There were rumors that not only was she a pimpass in her own right, but the motel manager actually had connections to the mob because yes, it is the 60s. And yes, that means the mob makes an appearance in our story. The mob has a long and sordid history of being involved in the music industry, and Sam knew this well. There were documented calls and visits from mob representatives to Sam's doorstep because, you see, the mob felt just as threatened as the rest of the music industry did by Sam's empire-building ideas. These representatives came bearing two messages. The first, they approached Sam by saying that they were impressed with his entrepreneurial savvy, and they asked, read, they expected to be given a seat at the table Sam was building, aka they wanted a massive cut of whatever it was Sam eventually would be reaping. When Sam denied them that, their tune changed, and he quickly became the recipient of mob threats and warnings to basically back off from encroaching on their territory 
and to stop pursuing the institutional changes that he felt so called to bring about. Sammy Davis Jr. recalled warning Sam after one such meeting, telling him how dangerous it was to tangle with members of the mafia. Sam's refusal to be bought or influenced by threats was courageous, definitely, but did that same courage get him whacked? However, though the mob played a powerful role in music industry circles, the power of the music executives was one that was truly on another level. And it was well known to them the way Sam was intending to shake up the industry's very foundation, which was a massive point of contention. Elvis himself believed that the influence of Sam's ideas and his business models were too much of a threat to the way of life music execs had cultivated for themselves on the backs of their artists. And he believed that Sam's death was a coordinated effort by the music industry higher-ups to silence him permanently. This honestly doesn't seem like that much of a stretch of the imagination, if you ask me. In Sam's own personal representation as an artist, we know there was strife. He had said the night before he died that he intended to fire Alan Klein and he wanted to restructure Tracy Limited to ensure he achieved his dream of being in full control of his own money and records and thus his legacy. As it was, Klein was already in a precarious situation regarding his relationship with Sam, even before Sam realized how he had tried to swindle him with Tracy Limited. Klein had become incredibly wealthy off of Sam, leeching off of his talent and creations, and he had allegedly stolen thousands of dollars from him in deals that benefited Klein over Sam. In fact, this pattern of creating predatory relationships with his artists would follow him long after Sam's death, and with other artists he famously, or maybe infamously is better used in this scenario, that Klein managed. His contentious and litigious relationship with the Rolling Stones, as well as the Beatles, all carried the same theme, that Klein would use their talents and artistry in order to create scenarios as their manager that would directly and massively profit him, oftentimes at the expense of those artists. Alan Klein became known as a sort of music industry boogeyman. And to me, it sounds like with good reason because of the way he used his position of extreme power to secure and multiply his own extreme wealth. Especially when you learn how wealthy Alan Klein really did end up. After Sam's death, Barbara ended up selling the remaining rights to his music over to Klein for just $50,000. Everything Sam had created and worked for ended up going to Klein, who would go on to found his own company, Abco Records, leaving his original partner, J.W. Alexander, dying broke. There's a particular type of pain in seeing what happened to Sam's musical legacy, in knowing that everything he worked so hard for, it wound up in the pockets of soulless organizations and one that was so far flung from the artist-centric empire he was just in the beginning of building. With so many avenues to consider in finding out what really happened to Sam Cooke at the Hacienda Motel, we must ask, as we always do, some hashtag fucking questions. And let's start with this one. Were Bertha Franklin and Lisa Boyer in cahoots in orchestrating the robbery and attack on Sam? Did they intend to kill Sam from the very start of the evening? Was Lisa Boyer utilizing her role artist skills the night of Sam's death in order to rob him on orders of her pimp? 
where did the rest of Sam's clothes that were allegedly never found end up? Sam allegedly had the $5,000 on him the night of his death, but when his wallet was recovered, there was only $108 left and all of his credit cards were missing. Where did the rest of the money go? If Lisa Boyer really ran off with Sam's pants, reason suggests his wallet was still in the pocket. And we have to ask, did Lisa Boyer make off with the thousands of dollars that still would have been in it? And if she didn't, who did? And who then would have taken his credit cards? Were the rumors of Bertha Franklin having mob ties true? And if so, was she hired as a patsy for the mob to take out Sam Cooke to protect their vested interests in the music industry. If Etta James's statement in her memoir is to be believed, how did Sam acquire the injuries she saw at his funeral? Why was the investigation into his death so surface level and incomplete? And more to that matter, why did the investigation only last five days? Why was the coroner's inquest held so quickly after Sam's death? Was this in an effort to quickly sweep the story aside to keep people from taking a closer look? Was Alan Klein aware of Sam's intent to fire him after discovering his deception with the Tracy Limited and RCA Victor renegotiation deal? And did this cause him to orchestrate an accident to protect his own interests? Did Alan Klein coordinate with the mob or other music industry executives to stop Sam from revolutionizing the industry's business foundation? In essence, I guess we should simply ask, through whatever means available, did Alan Klein orchestrate Sam's murder? Did Sam's association with civil rights movement and its various leaders endanger his life enough for the government to want him dead? Like I said, just two months after Sam was shot, Malcolm X was assassinated, and three years later, Martin Luther King Jr. would also be dead. These three men were all known associates, and they all wound up shot dead. Did the government have all three men killed? Did Sam's involvement with the civil rights movement and his increased transparency about his own politics scare the music executives, the same ones who were already feeling threatened by his power, into having him killed? And who would, though, at the end of the day, who would want to shoot Sam Cooke? It's been 56 years since Sam Cooke was murdered, and while there are so many questions that still surround the circumstances of his death, I think the biggest question of it all is, what could Sam Cooke have become if he had lived? A Change is Gonna Come was only released after his death, and the message of the music truly captures that wistful idea of what could have come. It's a eulogy of Sam Cooke as a whole, and it's a eulogy of his potential. And in the words of Renee Graham from the documentary, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, it is the shame of this nation that a change is going to come is still so relevant today. There's a unique sharpness added to the pain of losing Sam when listening to the song because it's a twofold sort of pain. We're reminded of the tragedy of losing this truly magnificent man and the denial of seeing everything he worked for come to fruition. He was a man who could croon on the stage of American Bandstand in a way that invited comparisons to Frank Sinatra, and he was the same man singing raw and proud and beautifully to his ever-supportive Black audience live at Harlem Square Club. It was an experience that was, much like a change is going to come, the album was only released after his death. 
And it's one I encourage you to listen to so you can really experience the power and authenticity of Sam Cooke. I'll leave you with this thought. Dark as hell is a place where we delve into darkness and there's a particularly tragic layer of it entwined into the story of Sam Cooke's murder because for too long, the manner of his death has manipulated the story of his life and tried to erase who he really was. I hope this episode did some work in reversing that erasure and instead sheds light on the man who truly did through his work and words and song begin the process of bringing about much needed change. The mystery of Sam's Cook murder is still there, but don't let the story of his death overshadow the incredible life that he lived. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of DA Patreon crew, Becca Simonoko. Your support for the podcast truly means so much, as do you as a human, so thank you. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. If you're interested in joining Da Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasthellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com. I know this weekend is the 4th of July, and it feels like a strange time in our country right now to be celebrating. So I'll just say this. Whatever it is that's on your agenda this weekend, stay safe. Stay hydrated, both with water and your adult beverage of choice, and make sure that your furry friends are safe and sound during these normal fireworks. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.